back. I think I should should quote from the arts section of the week magazine, their book review section, in this case about the Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. To quote from the magazine, for Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers weren't the half of it, quoting Glenn Atchiller in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. In his chilling new book about U.S. nuclear weapons policy, the whistleblower who in 1971 leaked classified documents about U.S. operations in Vietnam details how he was, at the time, planning to expose an even more explosive secret cache. Ever since the well-placed military analyst first gained access to the nation's plans for nuclear war, he'd worried that they'd put the fate of the planet at risk. And in following years, he copied thousands of documents that could prove it. That horde, alas, was lost in a storm while Ellsberg was on the lam. Decades of others' reporting have shaken loose many secrets, though, and that has enabled Ellsberg to finally issue the warning he always intended. Writing in the New York Review of Books, Thomas Powers said, The first third of the new book is arguably the best first-person account of what nuclear war planning was really like. Hired by the Rand Corporation out of Harvard, Ellsberg used his think tank perch to help the Pentagon shape its nuclear strike doctrines. And he worked closely with Herman Kahn, Curtis LeMay, and other key policymakers. But he gradually became unsettled by what he learned about command and control procedures. He discovered, for example, that even a small U.S.-Soviet skirmish could trigger the deployment of America's entire nuclear arsenal. And, said Fred Kaplan writing in Slate, it wasn't just the president who had his finger on the button. A wide circle of officials were similarly empowered, and the same was true for the Soviets. Which meant that only luck prevented two officers on a Soviet nuclear sub from firing their torpedoes during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Which would, we would note, surely have set off World War III. Kaplan notes that Ellsberg reached a turning point when he saw a 1961 Joint Chiefs of Staff memo that casually noted that the death toll from a full-scale nuclear attack would probably reach 600 million people. Ellsberg wrote, From that day on, I've had one overriding life purpose to prevent the execution of any such plan. Kevin Canfield, writing in the San Francisco Chronicle, said, Because the danger hasn't passed, he offers some bold proposals. Yet it's hard to imagine any president heeding Ellsberg's call for the elimination of land-based missiles, much less agreeing to a no-first-use pledge. Ellsberg admits as much, but insists such measures are needed. Quoting, This is not a species to be trusted with nuclear weapons. And that doesn't just apply to crazy, quote-unquote, third-world leaders. I was describing some of the contents of this book to a former naval officer whose career was spent tracking Russian submarines. Reiterating to her Ellsberg's description about how it seems like in almost every case the only plan the military had back in the 50s, which has unfortunately carried forward to today, is full-on nuclear war. Her comment was, well, if we're going to go that way, we don't deserve to make it as a species. At any rate, we cannot recommend this book highly enough, The Doomsday Machine. And although Ellsberg's personal involvement in nuclear planning certainly ended once he became a, a, a renegade whistleblower in 1971, he has, of course, been following events closely ever since. Much of what he has to say in this book is just startlingly commonsensical. To choose just one example, 
If you're going to plan for a nuclear war, somewhere along the way, you should have a plan for how you're going to stop the nuclear war which you started. Now, probably the most effective way to guarantee that you can't stop the nuclear war that you started would be to kill off all the people that are making decisions about how to rein things in. Now, one of the most disturbing aspects of the book is that nuclear planning in the United States has not been about a defense to a nuclear attack from others. Most of our nuclear planning has gone into the first strike. A secondary part of the planning has been to ensure that after receiving a counter-strike after our first strike, we still have enough left over to have some bargaining power. This is a disturbing reality. Equally disturbing is the fact that most nations out there, but not the United States, have stated that they will not be the first ones to use a nuclear war. The Soviet Union and now Russia has always said that. We will not be the first. The good old government of the U.S. of A, conversely, has always stated that they will not make that statement. They will not basically take that off the table. And Ellsberg gives something like a couple of dozen examples over the years where the United States, in fact, used the threat of a nuclear attack to achieve its aims. Now, that isn't exactly identical to using nuclear weapons, although we've done that too. But you could argue that, you know, not every use of a gun is to point it and shoot it. Pointing a gun at your head and saying, now, give me all of your money is a use of a weapon. In a similar fashion, threatening another nation that we're going to use an atomic attack against you unless you do X is, in essence, a use of said weapons. And rather startlingly, Ellsberg reveals that apparently that's how Eisenhower brought the Korean conflict to an armistice. After taking power, he threatened the Chinese that if you don't bring this thing to a stop, we just may nuke you. I don't know if you knew that, dear listener. I certainly didn't. Ellsberg also points out as one of the subplots in the book, that they knew as early as 1942 that it might be possible to use an atomic bomb as a trigger for a super bomb, a hydrogen bomb. And although most Americans don't know the difference between fission and fusion and atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs, the unsettling reality is pretty much everything we have in our nuclear arsenal are hydrogen bombs, which are a thousand times more powerful, or can be a thousand times more powerful than what we dropped on Japanese cities in 1945. Now, what was discovered in testing these so-called weapons, they're actually too powerful to be any sort of meaningful weapon, was that to make better use of them, they had to reduce their explosive power. So instead of making them a thousand times as powerful as the Hiroshima bomb, they worked on making them more like, you know, 70 to 100 times as powerful. But to get back to one of the most important points of the book, if you're going to eliminate the command and control capabilities of your opponent, who's going to stop flinging the missiles back and forth? Carter, and later Reagan in the late 70s and early 80s, made it a point to say, well, what we're going to do to make this whole thing viable, this nuclear war concept, is we're going to take out <laughs> the other side's top command. The U.S. always realized that that was a possibility, and to make sure that no one would be tempted to do so, they delegated command to start a nuclear war further down the chain of command. Ellsberg discovered to his horror in the late 50s that basically base commanders, a la Dr. Strangelove, were assuming that they would have the authority to send their nukes off 
if suspicious things happened and they were out of touch with their superiors. Ellsberg thought, rightfully, that this would vastly increase the possibility of a nuclear conflagration that might destroy the world, and certainly was counter to what the public has been told all these years, in which perhaps you believe, dear listener, is, which is that only the president has the authority to launch a nuclear war. At any rate, both Russia and the United States have always put in a contingency to prevent a decapitation strike, you know, winning the, the game in one, in one blow. W- of course, winning the game excludes the possibility that if you launch something like 100 nuclear missiles that make 100 nuclear explosions, you're going to create a nuclear winter, which is going to plunge planet Earth into darkness and crop failures for several years, which, which wouldn't be good. Anyway, this is a complex topic. I'm not doing it justice here in a brief discussion, and I think I'm going to stop talking about it, but we will return to it in the future. And I've changed my mind. I'm not going to quote from the book right now. We're going to save that for future reference. We're also intrigued by the fact that, according to The Economist magazine, uh, in, their book review, in their book review section, there's a new book out about Enrico Fermi. It's by David Schwartz, and it's titled The Last Man Who Knew Everything, The Life and Times of Enrico Fermi, Father of the Nuclear Age. Now, Fermi is one of those remarkable characters we probably should devote an entire segment to in future programs, and perhaps we will. Hey, maybe we'll read this book and bring David Schwartz on board. This does cause me to back into Ellsberg's book just a little bit to note that he was inspired by a remark made by one of the witnesses to the Trinity test in New Mexico in 1945, the first test of the plutonium bomb, that when it first went off, they were shocked at how much brighter it was than they expected. And one of the scientists laying there first thought to himself, Fermi was right. What he meant by that was the calculation that the ignition of the bomb would cause the nitrogen in the Earth's atmosphere, along with water molecules, to basically fuse. There was a slight potential that such a chain reaction would destroy planet Earth. The Manhattan Project scientists first discovered this fact in 1942 and ran off to talk to some physicists about what the odds actually were. In what was perhaps pulling a number out of thin air, somebody concluded, well, the chances of that are like three in a million. Apparently, Fermi thought the odds were considerably higher. And apparently, on the way to the nuclear test, he turned to others and said he was now willing to make book on the destruction of the world. When someone asked him what he thought the odds were that this catastrophic event would take place, he apparently threw back the number, oh, about one in ten. Apparently, they're not sure to this day whether he was joking. But as Ellsberg likes to point out, even if the odds were three in one million, was it worth risking the possibility of turning the Earth into a crispy cinder? That uh, was one option that was actually worse than Nazi control of the world. And most astonishing of all, apparently one of the reasons Hitler lost interest in the nuclear program that the Nazis could potentially have gone forward with, at least by throwing a lot more money and, and effort at the project, was that apparently Werner Heisenberg or others had pointed out to him the possibility that this weapon could have catastrophic consequences, causing Hitler to muse that, boy, these scientists might just destroy the planet one of these days with some of these things they're whipping together. To which he added, well, it'll take them a while to do it. I won't live to see it. Ellsberg did point out that Hitler did die by his own hand a couple of months before they tested the bomb in New Mexico. And uh, doggone it, we need a new topic. 
Let us move on from this grim talk and do some of the usual things we like to do that are a little lighter on this program, such as the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for novel legal arguments when a court in Pennsylvania rejected a prison inmate's claim that a bag of marijuana found in his rectum did not, in fact, belong to him. It was conversely a bad week for the environment last week with the news the Trump administration proposes rolling back safety regulations for offshore oil and gas drilling those that were put into place after the 2010 Deepwater Horizon rig disaster. The Trump Interior Department proposes relaxing the rules on blowout preventers, which seal off undersea oil and gas wells in an accident, and removes the requirement that inspectors confirm that the amount of pressure that drillers propose to use in the new wells is, in fact, safe. The Interior Department says the proposal reduces, quote, unnecessary burdens, unquote, on the energy industry and will save firms $228 million over 10 years. It, it seems to us this is probably not a good trade-off to prevent the greatest blowout of an oil platform in history. At any rate, it was kind of an ugly week for working to minimize addictions with the news that Kathy Gilroy of Illinois, who's a prominent anti-gambling crusader, won $25,000 playing a sweepstake game in a local cafe. Gilroy has denied any hypocrisy, explaining that the win was God showing his grace on me for her noble fight against gambling. And, well, here's an item. We're not sure if this is good or bad or ugly or some combination of all three, but here's the item. An Illinois woman, evidently not Kathy Gilroy, has gone into business selling tiny prosthetic penises for trans boys as young as five. Sarah Daysatch, the mother of a gender non-conforming child, is marketing the silicone underwear inserts on a website that declares, quote, helping your kids live fully and embodied is our only goal, unquote. Reportedly, the penises are available in a range of skin shades from cashew to chocolate, to which we cannot resist affixing one of the most hilarious recurrent headlines from the old Esquire's dubious achievements of the year award. When we hear about skin shades from cashew to chocolate, we have to label it worst new flavor. Damn, we missed those Esquire's dubious achievements of the year awards, which used to come out every January. Oh, well, we do have an item that we're certain is good and bad and ugly which is that citizens can now carry guns into the chamber of Tennessee's state legislature, but they can't bring in homemade signs. Critics of this new policy say it's designed to curb the free speech rights of Tennesseans in the wake of angry protests last year over immigration, Medicaid expansion, and other issues, period. Legislators said they banned quote, hand-carried signs and signs on hand sticks, unquote, because 
they represent a serious safety hazard, as opposed to, say, guns. And sadly, this takes us back a dozen years ago to the protests that were taking place in downtown Sacramento over a symposium that was showcasing genetically modified organisms. When protesters there showed up with some handmade signs, they were tackled by police, arrested, and thrown in jail. Why was this? Well, as reported on Radio Parallax, this was because the sticks used in making the signs were a little bit wider than the regulations they established for safety. They were considered, for legal purposes anyway, clubs, which could be used to inflict bodily injury. This correspondent has been around the world twice. I've visited over 90 countries, and I want to say that the most frightening example of overwhelming police forces took place three miles from my house in downtown Sacramento. I think that's all I'm going to say about that. All right, let's do some lighter fare. We're intrigued by the item from Wired.com, which notes that enjoying a cup of coffee has always been a balancing act. Noted Wired, first you have to wait for the coffee to cool, then you have to drink it before it gets cold. Well, apparently the Ember ceramic mug does away with that hassle by keeping your brew at its optimal temperature, which is judged to be 136 degrees, according to what's described as scientific studies. This mug has heating and cooling elements in its walls that adjust constantly to create convection currents and maintain a uniform temperature throughout. It's noted that although the mug may carry what seems to be an extravagant price, which is $80, if you're a heavy job ahead, there's nothing more satisfying than never getting a bad sip. Well, this raises the question, is necessity the mother of invention, or is invention, in fact, the mother of necessity? The debate goes on. Now, Mr. Merlin and I can't seem to remember whether we talked about the battle of the sexes, the movie, on this program. Well, here's my summary then. Don't bother. A movie about that 1973 classic of hype, I guess you'd say, the match between women's tennis champion Billie Jean King and the well-past-his-prime Bobby Riggs, who I guess once was the champion at Wimbledon, who I guess once was the, who I guess once was a Wimbledon champion, like 25 years earlier. Well, this was the kind of thing that, you know, it should have rendered some fantastic comedy. And while Steve Carell's version of Bobby Riggs does have its moments, the movie, frankly, in this correspondent's opinion, gets lost in political correctness. And in fact, it is political correctness which has given us pause in having a discussion about the battle of the sexes in tennis in a greater sense. We know some people who are highly knowledgeable about things related to tennis who have noted that if the world's best women's tennis players had to compete on a level playing field against their male counterparts, they would get smoked. We suspect this is true, but suspect that delving into it (laughs) is something from which not a lot of good will come. But naturally, being who we are here at Radio Parallax, we're probably going to take a stab at it sometime in 2018. In a rather offhand remark, uh, John McEnroe, who I wouldn't say we're a fan of on this program due to his brat-like behavior over the years, did make the comment some time ago that if Serena Williams had to play against men, she'd be ranked something like 700th in the world. At any rate, we're somewhat intrigued by this, uh, this discussion and therefore may approach it with perhaps kid gloves on in the future. 
In other tennis news, which is not a common segue on this program, Boris Becker may have to sell off his Wimbledon trophies and could have his homes repossessed after reportedly racking up more than $70 million in debt. The tennis champion declared bankruptcy last June, but the press in Germany says that his reported debts are just the tip of the iceberg and that he has burned through tens of millions of dollars on failed business ventures, divorces, and years of lavish living. Becker, age 49, has been told not to remove any of his trophies from his London home and is now reportedly considering accepting $650,000 to appear on a British reality TV show. Said a source, he needs a way to make a lot of money fast. This does remind us of that great quote from George Raft, who once said, explaining how he burned through $10 million in fortune, part of it went for horses, part of it went for gambling, part of it went for women. The rest, I spent foolishly. Anyway, I think I'm going to end the program by returning to something that we mentioned near the top of the show, which was that, uh, that special on PBS involving Teddy Roosevelt's rundown, what was then called The River of Doubt, which has subsequently been known as the Rio Roosevelt. The program showed how Roosevelt was accompanied on this mission by his son, Kermit. And at one point, Kermit apparently did some things that which kind of saved the day. Roosevelt's wife thought it was good to have Kermit aboard, knowing what Teddy was likely to get himself into. Of course, as the documentary demonstrated, Kermit was very much his father's son, and more than once managed to get himself into hotter water than he should have. I puzzled over the name Kermit Roosevelt because I thought that that was the fellow that was involved in the coup that uh, basically put the Shah back in power in 1954, done by the CIA. That was, in fact, Kermit Roosevelt Jr., Teddy's grandson. And that whole debacle is something we need to talk about in a future installment of this program. It explains a lot about why the Iranian government isn't necessarily that keen on the U.S. government. But it's sort of funny that as the documentary started, a friend of mine called and I said, oh, I want to watch this, this program about Teddy Roosevelt. And she said, oh, I do too. So when it was over, she called me for a recap, knowing that I have a head full of useless presidential trivia. Now, my ability to discuss TR was certainly enhanced by our interview conducted many years back with Evan Thomas, the best-selling author and New York editor, about his book, The War Lovers, subtitled Roosevelt Lodge Hearst and the Rush to Empire, 1898. If you never heard that interview, we suggest, dear listener, that you check it out at our archives at radioparallax.com. It was quite a get for us to have the distinguished author Evan Thomas on Radio Parallax. But when my friend called for a recap, I had to say that, you know, the Roosevelt is one of our most admirable presidents, to be sure, but that his presidency was an accident. He was not favored by his own Republican Party. In fact, every effort was made to remove him as governor of New York when he demonstrated that he had a progressive attitude about a lot of things, which the good folks at Wall Street weren't so happy about. In the 1900 election, Teddy Roosevelt was removed from the governorship of New York in order to run as vice president under William McKinley. McKinley won, Roosevelt became the vice president, and his enemies in the party thought, and that's the last we're ever going to hear of him. Unfortunately for them, when the anarchist Leon Chalgosh fatally wounded William McKinley, Teddy became president. Mark Hanna, the Republican fixer, the Karl Rove of his era, apparently remarked 
and this is an exact quote, but when he heard that McKinley had died, his comment was, and now that damn cowboy's president. And uh, that damn cowboy did take the Republican Party and America in a direction that, you know, no one would have predicted. He was a conservationist. And although he was a bit of a horse's ass and being a big game hunter, quote unquote, he thought it was important to maintain an environment so the big game would still be around, which, which is, you know, sound thinking. He got a lot done. And in fact, we should. Another guy we should have a whole segment on in future installments of this program, Teddy Roosevelt. But after getting elected in his own right in 1904 and having served most of McKinley's term, he thought seven years was enough and he stepped down in 1908 after turning the reins over to William Howard Taft. Taft was more your mainline Wall Street type Republican. And after four years, Teddy wasn't so happy with Taft's stewardship of the nation. He decided to win back the Republican nomination in 1912. And although he won more primaries than Taft, his own party turned its back on him. So he ran as a third party candidate. And he almost, but not quite, pulled it off. As it happened, Taft and Roosevelt splitting the Republican vote enabled Woodrow Wilson to get elected in 1912. And there's so much we could say about this era, which is a fascinating one, a little more than a century ago, but unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week. From the dusty mesa, her looming shadow grows, hidden in